You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Ultimately, we need to have a big reduction in fossil fuel investment. And as the net zero scenario sets out, you don't require any new fields. There's no question the pushback from the Exxons of the world has been long lived and done very well. They were very, very good propagandists. For May 11th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. On April 4th, 2022, the IPCC published the final part of its sixth assessment report, also known as AR6. AR6 is the first comprehensive update of the IPCC's climate science framework in eight years, and it has been eagerly anticipated. For those who aren't familiar with how the IPCC reports are produced, they are written by teams of researchers who are organized into three working groups. Working Group 1 studies the physical science basis of climate, and their portion of the sixth assessment was released in August of 2021. Working Group 2 assesses the impact of climate change, which they call Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability, and their report was released in March of this year. And Working Group 3 is where the detail on energy transition is located, and that report is called Mitigation of Climate Change. Change. Working Group 3 assesses the responses and solutions to climate change by reducing emissions and exploring ways to sequester greenhouse gases. Each one of the component reports represents the work of thousands of researchers, and each one is massive, running into the thousands of pages, so we could never explore all of them in depth. Instead, we've decided to focus just on the Working Group 3 report, since that's the part that's about the energy transition. And we're doing two shows on it. This is the first of those. In this episode, we speak with one of the lead authors of the Working Group 3 report, energy researcher Benjamin Silvacool of the University of Sussex, who you'll remember from episode 44. We'll discuss some of the major advances in AR6 over the AR5 report of eight years ago, the gaps between our national climate action ambitions, what is really needed to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees C, and some ways that those gaps can be closed, how market-based financial approaches can be harnessed to reduce carbon, the importance of equity and just transition strategies, the challenges of path dependency and technology lock-in, how political economy can inhibit taking action on climate, the roles that non-government actors and individuals can play in the transition, and the various ways of decarbonizing transportation and providing better low-carbon mobility. There's a ton of information in this dense one-hour interview, and I know you will get a lot of value out of it. Benjamin is one of the top energy transition researchers in the world, and it's really a privilege to have him back on the show. Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at an innovative solar project in California. We'll salute a record-setting offshore wind auction in the U.S. We'll have a peek at new wind targets in Australia. We'll check out the first major move by the insurance industry to depart from oil and gas. And we'll consider the implications of President Biden's move to use the Defense Production Act to secure supplies of key minerals for batteries and other applications that are essential to the energy transition. And be sure to tune in for part two of our coverage of the AR6 report in episode 173, where we'll focus on the updated figures for the remaining carbon budget and explore the probabilities for limiting warming to 1.5 and 2 degrees C. But before we go to the interview... 
Announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest university site licensee, the University of East Anglia, a public research university in Norwich, UK. They are ranked among the top 25 universities in the UK and the top 200 in the world, and I'm thrilled that our full catalog of complete shows is now available to all their faculty and students. Welcome. And now, our conversation with Benjamin Sovacool, recorded March 25th, 2022. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Benjamin, to the Energy Transition Show. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. My pleasure. You know, it's been almost five years since your last appearance on the show in episode 44, which was back in 2017. So my apologies for taking so long to have you back, and <laughs> thanks for rejoining us. So you're one of the top researchers in the world on energy transition, and there are really far too many topics that I'd like to discuss with you, but the third and final part of the IPCC's sixth assessment was recently published, which is the part that deals with the energy transition. And since you're a lead author on it, I'd like to start by just getting your high-level thoughts on the findings. And I'll just state right up front that the report does say, quote, a focus on energy use and supply is essential, but not sufficient on its own. The land sector and food systems deserve attention, and I do not dispute that. But since this show is about the energy transition, I'm just going to focus on the energy aspects of the report in today's conversation. So to begin with, we are still not on track to limit warming to 2 degrees C, let alone 1.5 degrees, are we? No, but let me back up a bit, Chris, and say that, of course, I'm speaking in my capacity as a professor at Sussex and Aarhus and Boston University. I'm not speaking on behalf of the IPCC. They're very careful about that. And okay. IPCC language is always greatly reviewed and put into what's called the summary for policymakers. So that's kind of the consensus that emerges once we take the science and run it by governments. Right. But you had a really good kind of query before, and I wanted to run with it before I answer this direct question about whether we're on track, and that's what's different about the report this time? As you called it, it is the AR6. So there have been five more of these, as well as a whole dozen of what are called special reports in the interim, of which you may have seen the 1.5 degree report, which is a few years old. So I wanted to emphasize that I really do think the IPCC evolves with the science, and I think the three things that are very different about this AR6, Working Group 3, or just the mitigation part, are A, finally, much broader representation of the social sciences, B, a much better treatment of energy demand, and C, a much stronger focus on equity and justice issues. And to expand on that just quickly, in terms of A, we finally see social science teams embedded in almost all of the chapters, and not just one or two, but like five, six, seven social scientists from behavioral science and psychology or sociology and geography and political science and all the way up to even history and some arts and humanities scholars. And so that's a first because the IPCC is usually dominated by climate scientists or economists. So it's quite nice to see this kind of refreshing inclusion of other disciplines. The second thing is very true to my heart as well, and that's this kind of renewed focus on energy efficiency and energy demand. In previous chapters of the IPCC, it was often supply focused. So you'd see chapters on nuclear or industry or buildings and kind of demand was latent or viewed as falling as a kind of peripheral part of those chapters. In this new report, Energy, demand, and efficiency gets its own chapter. Behavior finally has its own chapter that talks about what we can do as individuals or communities in the near term and long term to kind of cut emissions. And that's quite nice in that it no longer treats energy demand as an afterthought. It features centrally 
along with chapters on transport or energy. And the final thing, which I know we'll talk about more, is equity, justice, just transitions are embedded in many, many chapters. They even get what's called a cross-chapter box and diagram, which is reserved for only those themes that occur across more than like three or four chapters. And so these types of issues about who's getting left behind, who's marginalized, who's vulnerable, what about gender, race, class, and power are actually repeatedly investigated in the report. So that's kind of nice in that we're seeing the report evolve and to reflect a broader base of inputs with better treatment of behavior and more emphasis on justice and equity. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I did catch on that myself as I was reading it going, you know, I don't remember seeing any of this stuff in the previous AR. So I'm glad you highlighted that. And that is a helpful introduction to what we're going to talk about today. But to return to my earlier question, we're not really on track for two degrees or even 1.5, are we? So the IPCC does two things that are a bit different than other scientific reports. The first one is it does do what's called evidence synthesis. So the IPCC doesn't do new research, but it doesn't go out and run its own data collection, like it doesn't do a survey, or it doesn't run its own models, or it doesn't do things like macroeconomic assessment. Right. What the IPCC is meant to do is reflect the state of the evidence, and that means that we only synthesize what the peer-reviewed literature says. And so here, there is clearly a consensus in the literature over the past 10 years that we are woefully behind in addressing climate change. The other thing the IPCC does is it gives you confident statements as it interprets the evidence. So if there's like a little bit of evidence, it might say that there's high uncertainty with the evidence. But if there's like a preponderance of evidence, then it will similarly give a confidence rating that says very likely, extremely likely. So it helps hedge those things. Current emissions trajectories and the fact that we aren't on track is one of the strongest findings from the report. There is high confidence and low uncertainty about this finding, which basically is IPCC speak that it's true. <laughs> All evidence indicates this. Right. Lots of studies have suggested we'll miss 1.5 degrees. There are many other studies that say that we'll miss two degrees. There are even studies that say we may hit three or four or five or more than five degrees. Now, granted, the longer you go out post-2030 or 2040, the more uncertainty there is. However, one of the things the IPCC also does, because it's synthesizing the evidence, is it really presumes there's a strong role for negative emissions and carbon dioxide removal. These negative emissions technologies can miraculously suck CO2 out of the air and then safely store it underground in saline aquifers or with maybe biologic sequestration, things like forestry or things like putting it into the ocean. Here's the rub. Most of the projections, as in more than two-thirds of the modeling scenarios run by the IPCC, do say that we can achieve a two-degree world, but they only reach that conclusion by assuming that we can deploy negative emissions technologies and carbon capture and storage widespread and globally by 2040-2045. So even then, it's kind of an if-but. Yes, we can make two degrees, but only if we somehow commercialize a technology that at the moment is not yet commercialized. Mm -hmm. The final bit of the question is really interesting too, and that's keep in mind that the IPCC is part of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. So we're very much plugged into the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Accords. 
And that means there's a great discussion about what countries are doing to cut their emissions. These are the nationally determined contributions or the NDCs, or I think they're even called INDCs in the actual text of the Paris Accord because it means internationally nationally determined contributions. The problem with those contributions is twofold. First, because it's a UN process, the targets for climate change have already been watered down. Paris by itself is kind of consensus-based policymaking. So already we're seeing countries like China and India agree to fewer emissions cuts than others. And already we're seeing clever use of things like per capita emissions or carbon emissions per unit of GDP rather than things like total emissions reduction. So even if we were to meet 100% of the Paris Accord, we'd probably still be pretty far off for two degrees. And we probably still don't even meet emissions targets for non-CO2 emissions like methane or some of the fluorinated gases from industry. So we call that the implementation gap, that even if we meet these types of pledges, we'll still be off. And on top of that, there's a huge emissions gap, that there are countries like the US or Russia that have not nearly set policies in line with the 1.5 or 2 degree world. So both of those gaps, the double gaps, the implementation gap and the emissions gap are pretty damning and indicating we won't meet 2 degrees. My personal belief is that the evidence now is probably suggesting a 3 or 4 degree warming by mid-century. And if we don't account well for tipping points, it could easily be 5 or 6 degrees. Right. So to the point about emissions gap, chapter four estimates this gap in 2030, which is the gap between the emissions reduction required in the scenarios that limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees C and the emissions reduction that might be achieved under these NDCs. And, you know, the report estimates an emissions gap of 20 to 26 gigatons of CO2 equivalent for the 1.5 degrees scenario. And that's assuming no or limited overshoot. And we discussed that overshoot question in previous episodes, so we don't have to belabor that. And 10 to 17 gigatons CO2 equivalent for scenarios that likely limit warming to 2 degrees C. But Chapter 4 also notes that non-government and subnational actors, and I'm just going to quote the report here, including civil society, the private sector, financial institutions, cities and other subnational authorities, local communities and indigenous peoples, end quote, could play significant roles in reducing emissions. Now, how much is hard to determine, but some of the existing literature indicates that subnational and non-state international cooperative initiatives could reduce to about 1.2 or 2 gigatons of CO2 equivalent per year. So that's 20 gigatons of CO2 equivalent by 2030. And if so, then that could be enough to close the emissions gap for the 2 degrees scenario, or maybe like two-thirds of what's required in the 1.5 degrees scenario. And I'll also point out that in the EIA's estimate, based on the NDCs and the pledges made at the last COP, they believe that if all those things were fulfilled, we're trending more towards sort of a 1.8 degrees scenario. So this all suggests to me that even though in the carefully massaged and reviewed (laughs) reporting of the AR6, very likely we are headed more toward that sort of three or four degree world. But if all these pledges are followed through on, and if non-government and subnational actors really step up to the plate, we could actually get to that sort of 1.5 to 2 degrees world. And so this suggests to me that we need to be putting much more emphasis on what non-state actors can do to reduce carbon emissions instead of just constantly focusing on national policies. Is that the kind of insight we should be taking away from these estimates? 
Yeah, I think that there's something very neat going on with these subnational actors, and it's a bit of optimism on an otherwise gloomy projection of the future. These subnational actors, the trick with how you count emissions reductions from things like cities or industry coalitions or kind of voluntary efforts is that you have to differentiate them from the NDCs. There's a lot of math that goes into determining baselines. Yeah. And a lot of potential double counting, right? Exactly. And that's where we really brought on board in the chapter Angel Sue from Yale and Nicholas Honhe and Takeshi Kuramochi, who do a lot of work for the New Climate Institute. They're all three of them are leading state of the art efforts where you can talk about being able to capture those baselines and avoid the double counting. Mm. So all these things I'm about to talk to you about actually avoid double counting. So there's no question of additionality of emissions. And it's quite good. It's that these subnational actors can actually save more carbon than the national actors. They can actually save potentially more carbon than the entire NDC process. Hmm. So it's kind of like working outside of the nation state system right. can be effective and quick and relatively cheap at emissions reductions. And that kind of makes sense because a lot of nation states have been deadlocked for climate policy. The United States is a great example. It's 2022. We still don't have a national carbon tax. We still have a lot of uncertainty over whether climate change is happening. We still have no federal renewable portfolio standard or other types of federal policies that consistently promote renewables. And there are huge pockets of the U.S. that you see very little renewable energy or energy efficiency penetration like the South. Right. So I think that's exactly why people who've gotten frustrated with federal inaction, especially under President Trump, would have perhaps acted through cities or acted through coalitions or acted through industries. So I think that the kind of frustration with the national system has led a lot of these subnational actors to actually accelerate their stuff. All right. So since there's a broad range of sectors and actions that non-government and subnational actors can affect, could you summarize the kind of interventions that they might undertake? Absolutely. So one of the nice things here is there are so many. So the way that we categorize them in our work is you can kind of break them out into cities. You can break them out into industry coalitions. You can break them out into forestry initiatives. You can break them out into supply chain and businesses. You can break them out into renewable energy coalitions, transport coalitions, building coalitions, and energy efficiency coalitions. That's how you get 20 gigatons plus of emissions reductions. Hmm. And I'll just give you some examples. So an example of a very large-scale energy efficiency effort is called United for Efficiency, or U4E. It is an intergovernmental thing run by the United Nations Environment Program. And just by kind of spotlighting energy efficiency among member states, it has the potential to displace 1.25 gigatons of CO2, which is a pretty big amount. Yeah. Another example, which I quite like, actually one of the far bigger examples, actually relates to things like business deployment. So this is like adding renewable energy capacity on existing Walmart stores or grocery stores or having companies that commit to getting better procurement and sourcing of renewables, like the RE100 initiative. These can each save between five and four gigatons of CO2 by 2030, like things like Rescale, LCTPI, or the RE100 initiative. Mm. Then you have other efforts like forestry. Forestry is actually the single biggest one. You could save up to 8.8 .8 gigatons. If you take things like the Bond Challenge or the Governor's Climate and Forest Task Force or the New York Declaration on Forests, so these are kind of voluntary efforts that just get better land use management. And I'll give you a final example, C40. 
The C40 Cities Climate Leadership Group has 94 cities, at least as of last year, that are aiming to also displace collectively three gigatons of CO2 to go beyond the objectives of the Paris Agreement. So you add all of these up, these kind of different initiatives that are happening outside of the formal nation state system. And again, you can get more than 20 gigatons of extra additional carbon emissions reductions. And those things, as you've been pointing out here, those numbers derive from sort of established initiatives, established efforts to sort of quantify the opportunity. So there's actually stuff that has not been quantified that doesn't have an established <laughs> initiative going after it or trying to quantify it, which the report points out, which includes things like religious organizations, colleges and universities, civic and cultural groups, and even to some extent households. And so as the report notes, even this estimate of potentially 20 gigatons from subnational or non-government actors can underestimate the potential for mitigating emissions. Absolutely. And there could be new initiatives that emerge as well from within the types of actors that we talked about. Industry and businesses and cities can do even more aggressive things, especially if climate change impacts are accelerated. And also things like individuals, where we haven't talked about kind of what large groups of individuals can do or social movements like Fridays for the Future or Extinction Rebellion. Sure. How if they become even more ingrained at getting people to cut emissions. So, yeah, I think this is the kind of minimum of 20 gigatons. You could see a lot more if you get churches and faith-based groups and civil society and just groups of individuals, maybe on WhatsApp, that decide to message each other and challenge each other to see if they can give up meat for a day or drive their car less or walk. My brother actually is part of a group that does some of this kind of peer nudging where they'd see who can cycle the most each week. So he's cycling to work. Yeah. And, and all these other things. So it's like good for him. And that's happening voluntarily. And it's definitely displacing transport emissions. Good for you, Chris Sovacool. <laughs> well, yeah, that was the first thing that popped into my mind when you said that. I was like, don't forget all those militant bicyclists out there. So the report also observes that harnessing financial tools to seek market-based solutions could really help to de-risk investments and support new business models in carbon reduction measures. For example, finding market-based ways to finance conservation. I actually did some work on that in a previous career, and we've also talked on this show about the role of the financial sector in setting standards and creating new ways to invest in carbon reduction measures. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that piece. It's a tricky question because I kind of get this notion of the market incentive, that if you're able to create market incentives, they can operate more efficiently and competitively than, say, governments, and they can get on board a broader array of stakeholders. And maybe they can find innovative ways of tackling problems that wouldn't have happened without those types of market instruments. And the good example here is the sulfur dioxide trading program that the U.S. implemented in the 90s right. after the Clean Air Act amendments of, I think, 1992, if my memory is correct. That was to address the problem of acid rain. That's right. So the kind of argument was that up until then, government had stipulated that industry had to use certain technologies. Industry complained it was so inefficient. What does someone in D.C. know about what some desalination plant in California or some ranch in California or Texas needs to do to cut its emissions? And so they kind of replaced it with a very flexible cap and trade system where it was like industry itself could decide. So they could change their fuel or they could do efficiency upgrades or they could relocate or they could do a whole variety of other things to cut their emissions far more cheaply than if government had just given them a list of what they had to do. So that's a good example of where market-based things can work, but they can also fail. So market-based instruments haven't been as good in, say, renewable energy credits 
or carbon credits where you see lots of gaming going on and you also see very unpredictable prices if you want to look at a roller coaster of prices look up the value of a ton of carbon on the european ets the emissions trading scheme it drops close to zero it goes as high as 50 euros up and down up and down because it's responding to supply and demand and also unforeseen events like ukraine russia conflict so i think that i'm a bit more circumspect about my belief in the potential for market mechanisms. I think that although they have certain benefits, they also have lots of transaction costs. You're involving banks and you're involving technocrats and analysts who are making money on these market instruments. And I also think that they have the potential to kind of exclude vulnerable groups or countries in the global south. If you want to look at some depressing evidence, you could look at auctions, renewable energy auctions, and how they've really hurt communities in Mexico or South Africa. Because again, this competition puts pressure to keep prices down, but the lower prices go, the less that small-scale communities can afford to operate a wind farm. They need high prices Mm. in order to generate community benefits or community revenues or to do gender training or to do kind of capacity building and mentoring and apprenticeships. So they don't want low prices. They want affordable or at least reliable prices. So I think that low cost isn't always good. Low cost could mean cheaper land, worse labor practices, and poorer environmental impact assessments. So I think I want quality rather than cheap forms of renewable energy. And I think that's the tension. How much and where does it make sense to do market-based mechanisms and where maybe in indigenous communities or regions of poverty, does it make more sense to do social protection entrepreneurship programs that aren't obsessed with profit and are instead actually focused on community well-being? Yeah, I definitely take your point as far as financing renewable energy projects and that kind of thing. But there's a totally different type of thing that also falls under the same heading, and that's financing conservation. Some of the previous work that I did was involved with this complex literature of trying to turn the value of ecosystem services or the value of natural capital into numbers that can fit into an econometric analysis or that can be evaluated or stuffed into a something like a net present value calculation and use that to guide policy. And so in that sense, it feels like maybe there's a potential for market-based strategies for financing conservation, particularly for the protection of the natural world. But that's a very different category of things under finance than what you were just talking about is sort of financing renewable energy projects. Yes. And I've seen conservation in terms of energy efficiency is one thing. And then conservation and like biological conservation and like protected areas is another. And I know there's been like debt for nature swaps and other ways of helping harness the global South's ability to protect their lands. I think the tension there is still with other predetermined land uses. So the thing with climate policy is it's, of course, it's about climate change first. So we want to sink as much carbon as possible. And we want to fund conservation, ecosystem restoration, wetland restoration, reforestation in ways that sink large amounts of carbon, but that could interfere in some cases with, say, local or regional uses of forests or fishing and things like that. So again, a community-first approach will get you a different list of things to do than a climate-first approach. And the key is that overlapping Venn diagram of where it's both Hmm. community well-being and climate protection. Right. That's a great point. So there's a fair bit of focus in this report on equity, as you mentioned at the top, which I think is also 
again, a bit more pronounced in AR6 than it was in previous reports, or a lot more pronounced. I know you've done quite a bit of research about that. So how would you characterize the importance of equity as we think about decarbonization strategies? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. When I was in the solar business in California nearly 20 years ago, I remember driving on Interstate 5 along portions of the 444-mile-long California aqueduct and thinking, if that thing just had a solar lid, it could be a huge source of generation and reduce evaporation in that arid climate. I even did a little research to see if anyone had tried to originate such a project, but as I recall, the red tape alone looked like a nearly insurmountable challenge. So I was excited to learn that a demonstration project is going to be built in the Turlock Irrigation District of California's Central Valley in what will be the first such project in the U.S. Dubbed Project Nexus, it will feature an estimated 8,500 feet of solar panels built over three sections of the Irrigation District's canals and generate 5 megawatts of power. The project will test out a variety of solar modules and incorporate an unspecified amount of battery storage. Built under a partnership with the Irrigation District, the Department of Water Resource, Berkeley-based Solar AquaGrid, and the University of California under a $20 million state grant, the project is expected to break ground this fall and be completed by the end of 2024. The project grew out of a 2021 study by the University of California Merced, which showed that covering all 4,000 miles of public water delivery system infrastructure in California with solar panels could result in significant water, energy, and cost savings for the state. Various reports about the study said that it showed potential for solar output of, quote, 13 gigawatts per year, which is nonsensical because a gigawatt is a rate, not a quantity. I guess the authors haven't listened to our Energy Basics miniseries. 
I looked up the study, which was 47 pages of complex, jargon-laden, techno-economic analysis, but which did not, as far as I could find, actually offer a rolled-up estimate of power or energy. So I'm not really sure where that 13-gigawatt number came from, and the researchers did not respond to my inquiry about that. Still, the potential of the approach is clearly enormous, and I will be watching eagerly for reports on the results of this demonstration project in the coming years. Item 2. On February 28th, the largest sale of offshore wind leases in U.S. history took place, receiving $4.37 billion in winning bids. Six lease areas totaling over 488,000 acres in the New York... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.